Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 153. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Lee's Comics. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by popoptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. You remember them from your childhood. Half for the Friendly Ghost, Richie Ridge, Hot Stuff, Baby Huey, Sad Sack and Little Audrey. You read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies. Now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and the Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copies today. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One, by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Christmas, Christmas time is here, and Alvin and the Chipmunks are here again. In 1958, a down songwriter with an unlikely name of Ross Bagdasarian plunged the last of his family savings on a multi-speed tape recorded and created The Witch Doctor and Alvin and the Chipmunks. It changed the fortune for his family, his record label, and animated cartoon studio. Alvin! The story of Ross Bagdasarian, Liberty Records, Format Film, and The Alvin Show by Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions is available from Amazon and Fair Manor Media in hardcover, paperback, and ebook versions. Order your copies today. You can now order my latest book, The TTV Scrapbook, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Bear Manor Media. If you'd like signed copies of this or any of my books, please email me at funideas.mark at gmail.com for further information on how to order directly from me via PayPal. I now have three super articles to write for Back Issue. Super Richie, Super Dagwood, and Super Fan. My Pac-Man book is the next to be coming out, and I'm still working on my Mad and Turtles books. 
Warren Kremer is due out eventually, as is my next Disney book. On today's show, we have an artist who has worked in advertising, comic books, greeting cards, and much more. Plus, he did the covers for my Alvin and the Chipmunks book and my TTV scrapbook. Here he is, Jim Engel. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. On today's episode, we have an artist who's done a couple book covers for me, and we'll show those later on the show. And his name is Jim Engel. How are you, Jim? How are you today? I am good, Mark. How are you? I'm very good. I'm doing very good, too. Good. So um, I've known about you probably I think since the 70s. <laughs> you know, I've seen um, your art around in different things. And, yeah. Um, that's, that's... Probably the comic reader might be the first thing I saw you in. <laughs> yes, the comic reader um, would have been in the uh, late 70s. I, I, was, I, I am still very good friends. Mike Tiefenbacher is one of my best friends. And the comic reader guys, Jerry and Mike Sinkovec and Tiefenbacher of Street Enterprises, were putting out the comic reader. We're all friends. And at one point, the, the discussion came up of what if we did comic strips for them. So I did a comic, uh, a one-page color strip called Dick, Duck, Duck, Dick, which was about a funny animal detective and, um, and a little strip alongside that called Pals. And then um, a little bit later, I had this idea. I I love making fun and satirizing comics. So I I proposed Phantom Confidential, which was a photo of Fumetti strip where ostensibly Chuck Fiala and I were newsmen that were reporting on comics. Um, So that was a lot of fun. But, but, you know, in the 70s, just tonight, my son-in-law FaceTimed me and said, have you seen this show called, I think it's called A Comic Shop Near You. And Mm -hmm. um, they were discussing stickers of the, you know, from the seventies and they were showing stuff and it turned, he wanted to know if it was stuff I had done, which it was because during the seventies, during the sticker craze, I just, I did tons and tons of sticker sheets, um, stuff of my own design, licensed characters. Um, so yeah. So every once in a while I'll hear from somebody and there's a couple of guys on Facebook, really good cartoonists, a guy named Aaron Hazuri and um, I'm blanking on a couple other guys, but I also, I worked for a toy company at one point and we licensed Ninja Turtles and I did, Ninja Turtle spiral notebooks and Ninja Turtle school, you know, two, two pocket folders and things. Now, and I hear from guys now who are like, oh, man, I had those when I was a kid. I copied those. I love those. I never knew who did them, you know. So, yeah, it's it's. I guess I've been doing stuff long enough that there's a couple of generations with different frames of reference. <laughs> seen my stuff. Well, I've seen different stuff, but that was like the earliest that I can remember. Yeah, that, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I usually kind of start off uh, with asking, kind of tell me about yourself and okay. how you got started being an artist. Well, I always tell people I could never not draw. I, I could always draw. It's I, I, you know, I've had a little bit of dispute with some of my, or have had with some of my cartoonist friends. Um, I'm a Christian, so I believe, and I believe strongly in God-given talent for everybody, whatever it may be. So I can't take any credit for that. I could always draw and I could always draw better than my classmates, even in kindergarten and first grade. Um, I didn't ever have any training really of any kind, um, but you know, I, my school was pop culture. So um, all the animated cartoons I watched and I watched everything, all the comic books I could get my hands on from the time I could get my hands on comic books, little golden books, coloring books, all that stuff, and I, I was never somebody who like traced anything or like even tried to copy stuff overly much, but I think I just subliminally absorbed all of it. And I always like to tell people that because, you know, when you're a kid, as I was in the 60s, collecting comics or hanging on to your interest and, 
you know, cartoons as you did, I'm sure. Um, well, obviously you did. Um, you take a lot of heat for it, you know? When you reach the point where you can say you're making a living at it or you're making money at it, then people respect it regardless of what they aesthetically think of, of the subject matter, you know? <laughs> so I could always draw, and I always was obsessed with that stuff, as well as um, local kid, you know, we had some great local kid shows in Chicago with really cool puppets, and a, particularly a guy who became a friend of mine named Bill Jackson, who was like a legend in Chicago, who was also a cartoonist, so he drew on the show, which was very cool. But um, I just I just ate it all up, and I've never lost that curiosity. I'm still looking for artists I don't know. Um, I would go to the I would go to the store and look at the greeting cards. There's some beautiful greeting card art. I didn't know who the people were. Years later, I did greeting cards for ten years, and I heard from people who said, "I don't know your name, but I think you're the guy that drew these cards that I look at in the store." So it's 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 a full circle thing, and all the same things that I did myself. I've met other people who did who maybe saw my stuff as one of the people they were looking at and, and later on made the connection or whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah. And then when I got into high school, I just kept drawing. I was, you know, uh, by the, by the mid seventies, early seventies, actually, there were comic shops and stuff. So I met other cartoonists. I made friends with a lot of great cartoonists, Alan Hanley, who was really popular in Phantom, Gary John Reynolds, um, Chuck Fiala, just a bunch of people. And it became a little, you know, the, the, the fandom subculture became our, you know, our lives kind of, you know, and, but it all fed off each other because I've always enjoyed working with people and I've worked with some really talented people and taken inspiration from them too and in, in influencing each other. So I get to be 70, 74, I graduated high school. I was 17 years old when I graduated. I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I'd go to an art school and I'd sent away for some catalogs. And of course, in Chicago, you had the American Academy, the Chicago Academy and the Art Institute. But I didn't really know what I was going to do. I was working in a local drugstore and a neighbor was a was a photographer in an ad agency downtown, an art and photography studio that worked with all the major ad agencies in Chicago. And he was their head of photography. And he just said to my parents, you know, would you like me to take some of Jim's work down to the office and get it evaluated? Because the other half of the company was art and they, they had all the big clients, McDonald's and, you know, just amazing stuff. And so, you know, we said, sure. Well, taking my work down meant some flair and colored pencil drawings on board, but mostly a pile of big pen drawings on lined notebook paper that I had accumulated. And they looked at it and they said, you know, um, we can see the potential here and we'll offer you a job. That was, you know, as an apprentice was all the grunt work. But, uh, and I said, well, I don't know, I'm thinking of going to art school. And they said, well, you could learn a lot here and you could always go to art school. So I took the job, $85 a week in 1974. I think my take-home pay was 65 bucks. They gave me an office the same size as anybody else's on the corner of Wabash and Lake downtown. All the art supplies I could possibly ever want. And art supplies, you know, after women's shoes are probably the most like overpriced thing in the world, art supplies. So that was great. And and so between all the, the sort of, you know, dirty work I had to do around the studio, preparing people's art to deliver and taking deliveries, um, I was to work up my own portfolio, you know, and they would eventually take it out. Now, in those days, salesmen would take a portfolio full of, you know, real art samples to show. And they they would include my stuff. And they didn't go, oh, by that time, this, they didn't go, this is our 18-year-old apprentice. They just said, this is a cartoonist we have. And, you know, when I was 18 or 19, I got a like a, a job doing a big display thing for Jose Cuervo tequila. And it's like, you know, I would look back at today and, and cringe, but but they saw something they liked. So I did that for a while and a year and a half, maybe when I was 19, I left and decided to try and hit the road in Chicago with a portfolio and uh, find an art job, which didn't happen right away. So 
a lot of people like myself, you know, you, you, you I spent all my free time in bookstores. So I got a job in a big bookstore downtown for a couple of months and uh, a place I had gone with my portfolio when I was looking offered to look at it, but I had to leave it. And I said, no, cause I won't have my portfolio to continue looking around. So I didn't, but this, this goes back to the comic shop thing. I met a, I met a great cartoonist on Saturdays when we go to the shop, a guy named Jim Wisniewski. If you don't know his work, you should look him up on Facebook. And we knew each other from the comic shops and he calls me one day and he says, we're looking for a second artist at this greeting card company I work at. And I think they'd hire you. And I realized when he tells me this, this is the place I blew off three months ago and they're still looking. for <laughs> So I went in, I got the job and um, I worked there for almost 10 years, drawing greeting cards, writing greeting cards, humorous greeting cards. And then they also got very big in the, when the sticker thing came along, they were a huge manufacturer of that. So I did all kinds of, and I got to work on licensed characters like Gumby, or I drew, I drew greeting cards of Hagar the Horrible and High and Lois and, other people's characters, Laurel and Hardy and W.C. Fields, which are character things, video games like Hubert. And um, in the process, I, I, I was able to display that I had a lot of versatility as far as working in different styles, you know, which, which, became, which became handy. So uh, from there, I went to a, a, a toy company called Diamond Toy Makers, where I worked with, uh, I replaced Craig Yo, who had been uh, the creative director before me. And I worked with a, a lot of great uh, really talented people, most notably Jay Lynch, uh, mm. who I had known and and was friends with. So we worked together. I was there for I don't know five or six years, and they were they got they were all licenses. Everything they did was licensed. That's where I did this Ninja Turtle stuff, um, Nintendo stuff, Disney stuff, Garfield stuff, and um, I did that like I said for about five six years. And then someone who I would worked with said. Um, I just interviewed at a place and they're not going to hire me, but I think they're looking for you. Like they didn't know me, but they're looking for you. And it was a company called Simon marketing and they were the lead marketing agency for McDonald's and they did happy meal toys. So the time I spent working for this small toy company, you know, suddenly made total sense to me. And I also was able to show in a portfolio, a lot of, um, the ability to work in all kinds of different styles, because obviously everything McDonald's did was a licensed property, a movie character, an animated cartoon, a you know, toy, et cetera. So um, that kind of clicked with them and they were like, yeah, great. You know, so I did that for, uh, for 13 years. I headed up the design team on McDonald's Happy Meal Toy. So every Happy Meal from like 1988 to 2001 was something I worked on. And then um, I don't know if you're familiar with the McMillions uh, scandal, which was a five part documentary on HBO. It was about a guy who, who was responsible for seeding the winning tickets for McDonald's Monopoly years, and he had a whole scam going. Well, that guy worked in our, um, our Atlanta office. So when the FBI finally finished their sting on this and they revealed it, our agency, which was a huge agency worldwide, was fired off the McDonald's business. And so um, that essentially killed the company. So uh, the core people that worked on Happy Meals with me, like I was head of creative, but we had, you know, product development people and sculptors. Uh, we started a new company because right then Burger King was looking for another agency. So a huge agency downtown called Draft Worldwide. It's like the biggest ad agency in the world actually wanted to start a division to go after the Burger King kids meal business. And lo and behold, they found out that a whole group was intact. So for the <laughs> since 2001, without missing a day, I left the McDonald's stuff on a Friday and I went to the Burger King stuff on a Monday. Um, <laughs> and I've been doing Burger King toys ever since. Now, 
in the meantime, do you want to get a word in edgewise here? Or do you want no, me to no, no, I'm, I'm formulating questions. Okay. In the meantime, <laughs> I've done every kind of, you know, freelancing that, that there was, you know, I always, I, if you'd asked me when I was a teenager, what did I want to do? It would have been comic books, you know, mm. but unfortunately, um, I'll digress and, and name drop. You, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with Joe Rubenstein, the, oh, yeah. the great inker, right? I, I have a sketchbook. It's full of drawings of rabbits by, you know, famous cartoonist people. Scott Shaw started me on this. He had a book of gorillas. Rubenstein had a fascinating book that I drew in at a convention that was all self-portraits of artists, you know, and really beautiful, like beautiful Joe Kubert and stuff. So I drew myself, full figure drawing of myself in a, in a big bunny costume with a ball and chain around my ankle and superheroes flying at every direction above me because as much as I wanted to do comics, I was around at a time when funny animals weren't a thing anymore, unless they were licensed, you know, and not like the 40s, 50s, 60s, even the 70s, where newly created characters just for comics were being published, which would, I would have loved to do. And so they only had, you know, limited license stuff for the most part. So, but I did do some stuff, and you've probably seen, I know you've seen, it. I did some stuff for Spotlight, I did some stuff for Mar, uh, for DC, uh, for a short period of time, I drew the Sunday comic strip of Mickey Mouse for King Features. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a lot of freelance and I always did a lot of freelance because it let me do other things that my job didn't let me do on a daily basis, you know? And um, for years I hired out for characters as a caricaturist, did mm -hmm. thousands of characters. I, I used to do that <laughs> at comic conventions at all the, you know, Chicago, Minneapolis, um, uh, Wisconsin conventions I would you know I'd set up a table I would do characters you know you come up hey I love Dr. Doom well I'd be unmasking Dr. Doom and it would be you you know <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, I also sold these things which a lot of people remember uh, they were called silly stand-ups and they were like small standees that I would did original art of I'm glancing over because I think there's I found some in a box recently it's a, it's a okay it's a here's, subway there <laughs> you're a you're a you're a hard fan here's one Yay. of spooky you know I didn't easel on the back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I'm in a, I, I'm in a subway in Chicago, in Chicago train station, like in 1935. <laughs> so I sold those, you know, and I got, and, 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 you know, between that and the comic reader stuff, uh, Chuck Fiala and I garnered a lot of attention in fandom, you know, like we, mm -hmm. we were guests of honor at, at many conventions in San Diego. We started um, performing uh, little comedy bits that I wrote during the masquerade thing, you know, Stan and Jack as, as uh, vaudeville comedians or, you know, true fan Capote interviewing me as Starenko in a white suit, whatever. <laughs> so it just, it just kind of got us some notoriety within fandom too. And, you know, like, you know, yourself, you get to know all the artists, you recognize so many people, you know, you love so much stuff. So that led to a few, you know, a few comic things that were up my alley. And, um, and then uh, I also, uh, it's funny, I met Craig Yo when um, I was doing greeting cards I didn't know him. I got a phone call and he said, I know your work. I've been following it, you know, comics and fanzines and stuff. And he had been hired here in Elgin, Illinois, where I live. I live in Lombard, but the suburbs of Chicago. Um, David C. Cook was like the biggest Christian publisher in the country. And Craig had been hired to uh, sort of art direct new curriculum and sort of get it, you know, make, make it a, make it a little more contemporary. So he used an incredible variety of people for that. And he said, I think you'd be good for this. So, for 15 years, I did um, like tons of curriculum stuff for them in my own style. It was a lot of fun. And then I also uh, did a lot of design work for um, Inesco. So 
and Esco is like a huge giftware company. So I did like ceramics and music boxes and banks and stuff of uh, Betty Boop and Popeye and Mickey Mouse and Friends and Sesame Street and uh, the Coca-Cola Bears. I did tons of giftware stuff, which was fun because like the toys, it's being put into th- in 3D, you know? I mean, one of my favorite things I ever did ever was a music box of Betty Boop playing an old time piano that's a wind up in a place I want to be loved by you, you know? <laughs> but, it, but I tried to design it so it looked like something old. And if you didn't know what it was, you probably would think it was old. Um, so I did a lot of, I've done a lot of freelance stuff as well. Um, and that got me into some of the areas that I love, including stuff like doing the covers for your books, because they were they're subjects that are dear to me and it's just fun to be part of it as i'm as i'm sure you know you know and also yeah. um yeah i'm a professional artist for I, I wrote this down but it's like 48 years now but um <laughs> but i'm also i'm also a, a fan and, and it's the fans that preserve the history of things you know here in chicago i'm I work with the Museum of Broadcast Communications, which is a radio and TV museum, and I'm their children's TV curator. And what that means is just my passion for my whole life of trying to preserve artifacts and memorabilia and history about Chicago's kid shows means that I end up being the guy who puts together their events, you know, their public events, designing their their um, their in-the-museum displays for all my old puppet friends and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's it always goes hand in hand. And so I'll bring that full circle. I don't think... I could ever, I can't imagine ever becoming an artist if I didn't have the inspiration of all that pop culture stuff that I liked. That's what really nurtured it. That's what always excited me. That's what excites me still. I spend an inordinate amount of time on uh, Facebook and other places just grabbing images. You know, I like, I would say today I've collected everything in my life, but today I think I collect images. I've got a file on my desk that's probably 50,000 images of everything that interests me from cartoon stills, model sheets, old comic book art, you know, diners, every, every conceivable thing. It's in it. You know, I remember a big Jack Davis coffee table book coming out and Jack Davis was a hero of mine. And I looked through it and I'm like, I've got all this stuff and it looks much better on my screen backlit than it does in this, in this murky thing. And plus this book is too big. I have too much stuff. So I'll shut up now, Mark. I I, I know which book you're talking about. Yeah. It's pretty oversized. It's a great book. I'm not saying that, but it's just like, of course, uh, I don't know if you are so, anal as I am before we digress into your back into your career. Uh, but uh, there's two versions of it because like the first one they printed, like if I remember correctly, like blue and gray or something that you couldn't even read it very well. And so they had to fix it. So I didn't know in, that in fixing it. And this is what I found out. And this is why I have both versions. Uh, they changed some of the artwork on some of the pages and it's like, Oh, great. <laughs> so, oh, yes. yeah. So you find double the space. Yeah, so I have both of them. I have two copies of Alex Ross. I'll name Alex Ross is a friend of mine. I have two copies of Marvelocity because he was not happy with the first version. So there's a slightly altered version that he made like, Oh, you want this one, you know? So, yeah. And yes, I do want that one. (laughs) So, well, I mean, that covered a lot of things. Let's see. Um, Goodbye, Mark. Yeah. Good night. No. Um, The thing that, I guess you kind of already answered, but, you know, it, it, but I'll just kind of tell you my background in seeing your work and why I eventually agreed to have you in the covers um, of my books, which I'll show in a second, um, is I'm, you know, a little bit younger than you. I'm 55 now. So um, I would see you and I'd see like Jerry Beck and I'd see David Ruse and Craig Yo and all these different people like doing things, you know, and I was still 
teenage or even a kid at times, you know, and you guys, I guess, were already in your early 20s or probably. Yeah, I got you know, 10 years on you, basically. Yeah, on so, yeah. So it's like, I was going, they're doing everything I want to do, <laughs> you know. But yeah. um, it's like, what I found amazing about you in, I have to say this is just kind of an aside. I always thought you and Chuck Yall were the same person for a while there, way back oh. when, because it seemed like you both appeared in the same things and you had similar art style. And yeah. I thought you were pulling like a John Severn because John Severn would sign things right. in different uh, pseudonyms and stuff. Yeah. And then I realized you were two different. Well, people. that's being very kind to Chuck. Um, <laughs> but we were we were in a lot of stuff together. And I actually did do some comic reader stuff under an alias. I had an alias that was okay. uh, Bor- Boris to Tears, like T U T I E R S. Well, that's a little more it. obvious. I well, mean, you had to say it out loud. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we were every we were very inseparable for a long, long time. And so a lot of the stuff we did was was together. I could see where you might think that. And I still get people who go, Oh, are you the guy who did Bullet Crow? And I'm sure he gets people who go, Are you the guys that did Dick Duck? You know, they were yeah, yeah. <laughs> they ran on facing pages and and uh yeah. So yeah. But it was no, fun. No. And we and we both fed off each other doing that too. That was great fun because were you friends with him or did you become how, how did you meet him oh well um i had a friend uh who died about 10 years ago he was he was uh six years older than me his name was gary ricker he was super knowledgeable about comics and pop culture and stuff i met him when i was probably like i don't know what i've been 12 13 years old mm-hmm. and um he had a collection in his room. He had a comic book like museum that you could go in. And if you, I know it sounds weird, but, and if you paid the quarter, whatever it was, he would match the quarter and it would go to uh, Jesse Jackson's operation Breadbasket in Chicago, which was designed to help, you know, underprivileged people before mm-hmm. Jesse Jackson became much more no- notorious than that. So when Marvel mania magazine came out, the first issue, they had a, they had a thing called Marvel maniac of the month. Now I knew Gary, you know, he became, we became very good friends. He, he was my best friend until he died, but um, they wrote an article about Gary and Marvel mania about how he was doing this thing, how you could see his collection, how the money went to a worthy cause. Well, in another Chicago suburb about half hour, 40 minutes away, Chuck Fiala is reading Marvel mania magazine. And he sees this guy, Gary is, you know, within reason that he could, he could visit him. So he calls him. They start talking every Friday night on the phone. And I'd be at Gary's house while they were, while they were doing this. And finally said, you know, that guy Chuck's going to come over Saturday. Why don't you come over? So Chuck's parents drive him because we neither of us drive, drive him over to Gary's house. That's how we met. We just became a, a trio. And then there's another great, great artist named Gary John Reynolds, who's an art professor in Boston. He joined the group. And we just became friends. And every Saturday, because gary ricker could drive we drove into chicago and made the rounds to the comic book stores like always so that's how chuck and i became friends and then you know we all had i think we all had the marx brothers as our comedic ideal you know we were all <laughs> we were all into that kind of stuff too so our you know, if you'd ask the comic owners about what it was like when we came into their shops it was we could be fairly raucous yeah. but um so it was it's was just we had all the same loves and influences and stuff mm-hmm. like that and it just was natural. And when I was working at that greeting card company I mentioned, um, Chuck worked there for a while. I got him hooked up with them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, for many, many years, we were we were doing everything, you know, simultaneously. So that, that's how we met. Yeah. And I think one of the earliest, you know, fanzines other than the comic reader was um, 
uh, Mindrot or Animania. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And that's where I saw things too. I think you well, did. See, a, and there, there's another example. So I think I found out about Mindrot because I liked the animation it was probably advertised somewhere. But then uh, Dave Mers and I became kind of like you know we wrote to each other, we talked on the phone, and then um, probably one of some of the most fun I ever had in my life. Um, Mike Tiefenbacher up in Wisconsin from the Comic Reader, his family owned a motorhome. So mm -hmm. Fiala and I would go up to Wisconsin. Uh, he and uh, Jerry Sinkovec and the two of us would drive the motorhome to the Minneapolis comic conventions. One year we took Don Rosa with us mm -hmm. on that trip. Um, Alan Hanley was there. Bob Clampett was a guest there who Chuck mm -hmm. and I both knew and adored. Mm -hmm. Beck was so we would drive this thing up there and we became then friends with all the... Um, all the Minneapolis guys like Dave Murs and Joel Thingvall and a number mm -hmm. of cartoonists up there. So, you know, that great kind of interconnection of, of fandom. We're like, we're like you and I right now where you could, you could essentially know somebody um, cause that's only around in fandom, right? I knew people I never met. I might yeah. sort of know somebody yeah. from the fandom world or even write letters to them. You know, I, Chuck Dixon used to do stuff for the fanzines that we did out of Chicago and we were great pen pals and stuff, but I don't, you know, I can't remember when we actually met, but we knew each other for years because of it, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, I, I noticed uh, over time, you know, that I go, Oh, he's kind of getting, a little more fame. I didn't know about your background career. You just explained yeah, yeah. it just now. So I assume all this other stuff was just what you could do in your spare time, you know, and stuff like that. It's like, so there's like, um, DC had those uh, comics back in the day, like Peter Panda and... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what? Uh, funny sugar, sugar and Spike and funny stuff and leading yeah. comics and everything. And then they somehow managed to cobble together a brand new one called Funny Stuff Stocking Stuffer. That's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> you did the cover on that one. I think you did the book too, if I remember. Yeah, correctly. I wrote it with Mike Tiefenbacher and um, we did the art with Chuck. I inked uh, the, the bulk of it. Um, you don't have time for that whole story, but I'll tell you, it's a fascinating one. I, I've been thinking <laughs> lately about writing an article about it for um, Back Issue or something because okay. in a nutshell, what happened was Mike, who is one of, one of the most knowledgeable people on comics in the world, truly he is, um, he gets this idea like we should revive the DC funny animal comics. Okay, I'm going to give you the nutshell version of this. And um, he, he writes a proposal and I write it with him. And it's basically like, let's revive these characters. We can modify them. We'll draw them in our own styles. We'll do, you know, new stories. We, we loved, um, you know, Sheldon Mayer and... Um, I did Howie Post to varying degrees. The rest of those guys, I'm not a big fan of DC funny animal books, but I thought there was, there was potential in the characters. Mm -hmm. So we send this proposal to DC and um, we hear back. Yeah, that sounds interesting to us. Um, can you send us some model sheets? So we all draw model sheets. It was, we just picked ourselves. I wanted to do Dodo and the Frog. Mm -hmm. Mike wanted to do Nutsy Squirrel and Chuck did the Raccoon Kids. <laughs> and and we, uh, we, do, we drew them in our own style. We send the model sheets, send us some plots. We sent them some plots. This is great. Um, show us uh, a sample page. So because I was the fastest of the three of us, I drew up a Dodo and the Frog sample page. Um, do a whole, show us a whole story. I do that. I drew, I write up the whole thing. Um, I think it's even, it's inked even. Yeah, I think we did finished art on it. So they, they say, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to start a new line. This has been in the 80s, you know. So they, they decided, you know what, we're going to kick this off with a Christmas book. And it, was, it was, came out of the blue to us. Can you put this together? I, I don't think it was super short time, but it was relatively quick. So we would get together, the three of us. 
we plot it out, we break it down. So it's, you know, like a sort of like a Justice League or a story or something or JSA story. It's like, here's an overall story, but here's the chapter with Dodo and the Frog. Here's the chapter with Raccoon Kids. Here's the chapter with Nazi Squirrel. So we do this. We're so excited. We can't believe this. I, I got to tell you, it's still to this day was like the greatest moment in our lives. And then two things happen that ruin. One, Dick Giordano suddenly reads the book and it was edited by Nick Cuddy, who was assigned to be our editor and he loved it. Everything was accepted. It's ready to go to press. And Dick Giordano reads it and says, it's mean spirited and it's not acceptable for kids. And I was really, we were really angry about this. So without having us rewrite it, they have Paul Kupperberg rewrite it and they paste new dialogue in over all of our things. And I write a very, pretty irate letter to Dick Giordano about, you know, look, look, man, I've worked as a professional artist my whole life. This is so like Bush league. I can't even believe you're doing this. And plus, and there, there were some at the time, some notoriously bad taste superhero things going on. And I go, I really find it hard to believe that you can publish this and this and this, but you have, you have trouble with danger in our story. That's on the order of like, will Bugs Bunny plummet off the cliff? You know, it was all mm. tongue in cheek. So that was, that was, that was a kick. Number one kick. Number two was, DC was starting to use flexographic printing, which if you're familiar with it means instead of being metal plates, which give you crisp outlines and stuff like a flexographic printing is like, I think it's like a thick cardboard or a plastic. So as a result, the, the reproductive um, qualities are horrible. So we literally were the first flexo book that DC published. Yeah. And then this whole, this whole thing happens. And I, feeling we all felt very embarrassed that, that like people would read what we didn't think was funny and we didn't you know no no offense to Paul Kupperberg whatever but Paul Kupperberg is not us and so it wasn't it, we didn't like it mm. and so I took a copy I had I had made copies of the art with the original word balloon dialogue and I sent it to, to Donna Maggie Thompson and I said look here's the story you know, we, we got jacked around. We're not happy with this. This book's going to come out. We're going to be embarrassed. If you read this and you think it's better, or you think, you know, at least sort of put something in the buyer's guide that vindicates us, you know, and they were great. And they didn't do it because we were friends. They did it because they really thought so. But she's, they wrote a thing that said, we get all kinds of advanced copies. Most of them ended up in garbage once the real book comes out. In this case, we're keeping this and throwing the comic away. Ooh. And, um, and then, and then it turned out that Giordano, Giordano says he's going to be in Chicago to have a meeting at, at uh, First Comics about some some crossover thing, and we are we are commanded we have a command uh, performance at a hotel that he's staying. So the three of us go there, and uh, Mike and I were still pretty verbal, you know, holding our own about like we you you know you gave us an editor, we pleased the editor. This is so unprofessional, you know. And then he says, "Oh well, Nick Cuddy's going to be fired," and we're like. Okay, but that's between you and him. Like, why did you assign us an editor that you don't even care what the guy says, you know? So anyways, after a, after a long thing where he, I think he was kind of annoyed particularly with me, but when it was over, he, we all shook hands and he said, okay, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to move forward. Um, you guys are going to do this. If you're not the guys that, that do it, it won't, it won't happen. And as it turns out, it didn't happen. And we weren't the guys that did it. But it was so disappointing. I got to tell you, I mean, that we really felt like for all of us, our ship came in. Mike is a huge DC fan. I, I love fan, fan animal stuff. 
and Chuck did too. And it was just like, this is great. We're going to have our own voice. I mean, yeah, we didn't make up these characters, but we changed them to whatever we wanted, you know? And, yeah. and I never, no offense to anybody, but I never saw a Dodo and Frog comic that would interest me at all. I, as much as I love funny animals, I can only name two or three examples of funny animal books that I think are actually funny. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah. like genuinely amuse, amuse me. So it was very exciting, but it, it fell by the wayside. But during that time, the funny stuff, stocking stuffer, which is, you know, fondly remembered. I've heard people, I've had more than a couple of people tell me, oh man, I bought that book when I was 12 or whatever. I poured over it, you know, so that's, that's, that's gratifying. And then those other things we did, we did a few digest covers of the characters right. and, uh, and a couple other things for DC. And, and uh, but so, that was it. It never happened. I did do a really fun uh, Outsiders parody uh, for Mike Barron for the Outsiders comic. Uh, it, it was sort of like in a Brand X sort of scenario or something. But um, yeah, but yeah, look uh, that up, Art. <laughs> the Outsiders at <laughs> the Bat. Look it up. I don't know everything you've ever go on my read. Facebook page. I think I've. I think it's there in an album and photos. Yeah. You don't even have to spend a penny. I mean, I'm kind of with you on all the DC things, but I have a fondness for it because I didn't grow up with them. I mean, they're already gone. And so, oh, they whenever, were gone when I was two. Whenever were... DC would publish anything in the digest or even, you know, anywhere, I would be like, I mean, even now, you know, it just kind of annoys me that they, you know, put out like volume one of Sugar and Spike in this nice, grandiose yeah, archive yeah, yeah. edition. And I said, well, uh, you got uh, 96 other issues. Can you continue going? <laughs> and and it's don't like, you. I always feel with stuff like that. It's like, don't put it out in a deluxe issue. Put it out in a phone book issue yeah. and publish more of it, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, put it out in some form. I mean, you know, yeah. like like on those Best of DC Digests, I, I skipped over most of the superhero ones because I didn't care. And they're also yeah. kind of hard to read because they weren't designed to be so small. Right. But the right. kids' comics, because they had less dialogue, were actually not too bad. So I'd get all the binky uh yeah. ones and i'd get all the the plop ones when i like plop and i'd get all the um you know funny stuff ones and it's mainly because you know all those characters uh, the only right. thing that was around when i was a kid is when dc was doing like those limited collector's edition ju jumbo treasury yeah. editions they did uh, rudolph one every year and oh I, yeah yeah i remember you know, that so that was yeah. in the 70s and so that's what i remember and that well, led to me finding out Oh, they did these in the 50s? Oh, and then they did a bunch of other comics that I've never yeah, seen see, before? Oh. I had never seen I had never seen those comics, of course, either. They they predate me. And most of the art doesn't appeal to me either. But the 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 one thing in them, and I didn't know I didn't know them. I mean I had Sugar and Spike comics when I was a kid, yeah, but I didn't know any of Sheldon Mayer's funny animal characters. Mm -hmm. And those things are little masterpieces in my mind. Yeah. Those they're 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 beautifully laid out. I, I'm not the hugest fan of his actual artwork, but I love the characters and, and the designs basically, but they're so funny. They're so, they're so great. I mean, they really are amazing. They're like, they're like little Lulu comics or something, the way that they're so worked out and they, and they have such great payoffs and so much so head and shoulders above the rest of the DC stuff for me. And then artistically how he posted, um, stuff for them which i found later as an adult yeah. or as, as an older teen like presto pete and jiminy as magic book and stuff that are just i i find beautiful and of course you're, you know i know you're a harvey fan so i grew up with you know how he post stuff warren kremer stuff i suppose ernie cologne stuff which i probably thought was warren kremer stuff yeah. and <laughs> uh you know took took a great deal of inspiration from that stuff too mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's just interesting, you know. But I, I was with you, so I, when that stocking stuffer came out, I was like, "Oh, good, they're doing new material." And then that was the only one, and they go, yeah. "Once again, just a one shot." And it's like, well, like, I will say this: I, I, I've, I actually have thought for a long time of just finding, and this is maybe a zine or someplace, but um, just publishing the pages side by side. I think it, I, yeah. the story's interesting, and there's more to it than that. we've got the correspondence and everything. And I finally thought, well, you know, well, maybe our failure would just be interesting to people to read of that in the '80s, DC was going to revive this stuff i do think it's you know for me art wise i think it was some of the best art i ever did and i can still look at it and appreciate appreciate it for that and i also did a lot of snuck in a lot of cameos of character other characters i liked so i never knew that story though the one that nobody got rewritten you know well didn't you say it was in comic buyer's guide later or see i wasn't reading no what the comics buyer's guide did was was say that it had been rewritten Oh, and so the samples of it. No, so when it came out, when it came out, at least if anybody thought, well, this isn't funny, they wouldn't be blaming us particularly. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Because I go, you know, I have nothing to compare it to since I haven't seen the original. Right. Uh, So I thought, you know, from your own words, the original ones made in the 50s weren't that funny. So I thought, well, this one's not that funny either, but I like how it looks. (laughs) Well, since you didn't write it, it, it's like I'm not offending you. We we wrote it. They just rewrote it. And they and they just we had there were so many great jokes in it that just fell by the wayside. And even I think I think they changed some of the names back because Chuck's thing, you know, um, the raccoon kids are like Uncle. I don't know. I can't even think of his name. And there's the two kids are like Rollo and, you know, I don't know. It's, this is wrong, but Rusty or something. But the kids are horrible brats, right? Right. So, so and we thought the, the uncle's name wasn't that funny either. So we, we changed it to Uncle Renfrew was the uncle. But Chuck, <laughs> Chuck's names for the two bratty kids were Rommel and Rasputin. Which I, just, I just thought that was genius, you know? And we had jokes in it like, I, I don't think this one made it through either. Um, the the characters are all locked up magically in a prison which this is all in the book but the um the he, they're stuck in the in these fake like bars they're not real but they're it's a power thing that's making them and the dodo is so stupid that he doesn't recognize that this has any so he just walks right right through the right through the bars and then one of the one of the raccoon kids says he just walked through the bars and someone else says, I thought you had to be 18 to walk through bars. Yeah. You know, just, just stuff like that, you know, yeah. but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and now you said uh, a few moments ago that you'd probably try to pitch it to back issue or something as an article or something. Like yeah. That. Because I think, yeah. I think with all this, you know, I, I love the tomorrow stuff and, yeah. um, and I, I think that, yeah, I, it's actually an interesting story that, you know, maybe yeah. three years after it was told wouldn't seem that interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I think I, I bring that up again, just because I think that's how you and I actually kind of connected in the first place, because I was doing some sort of article that you did the artwork for is probably the underdog one where you did artwork yeah, yeah, spotlight yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. And I said, Hey, do you have any artwork? Do you have any memories of this? And then I have everything, Mark. I was cleaning <laughs> my flat files the other day on anything <laughs> like that. I've got the the roughest rough, the next rough, the pencils. I don't throw anything out. Mm-hmm. So I did I did have all of it, and I still do. Yeah, for for me, it's just been kind of a frustrating life that all these things are like really short lived and stuff like that. You know, it's like you know, and they go, you know, how did comics with funny animals last hundreds of issues in the old days? You know, now yeah. we're lucky if you know. Unless it's like Scooby Doo or something like that, well, which I've never been a huge fan of, that seems to go on forever. 
But anything else, it's like gone. I'll tell you, you know? something that I think is, is even more gone than just the number of books. And that is that um, I work, since I mentioned before, I work with licensed properties for toys and stuff. For 30 years, I worked with every animation studio, every, every um, video game. You know, it's like, so licensed, licensed properties used to, you get a style guide, right? And a style guide existed back in the 70s so that if we need some labels or a book cover or something, and I'm drawing it, a style guide aids me to match the style of the of the property right that's what a style guide was it served the same purpose that a model sheet served in animation now there's no such thing if you were doing anything with a disney property or warner brothers property a style guide is essentially a catalog of images that you can pull out and use but you cannot create your own images for any of this stuff you have to use stuff supplied by the studios if it and if it's depending on the studio, you can't even like reverse the images, even if a character is perfectly symmetrical. No, no, you can't turn that the other way. Mm-hmm. So and similarly, I think what comic books in the, in the 40s, 40s, 50s, yeah, if somebody was drawing Donald Duck, they were trying to match the animation style, but you know, it's not really totally possible. In the same way that you can pick out who animated what scene in a cartoon, we all you know, become good at identifying the cartoonists who did particular books. Right. So. If you, but that's not true now. Like when comic books were being done, when Disney was still putting out new comics not that long ago, and it was Little Mermaid or something, you really couldn't couldn't tell a style. They were slavishly um, sticking to the um, model sheets, right. and so there's no personality there for me. See, if if that had happened in the '40s and the '50s, and every Mighty Mouse comic or every Donald Duck comic or every Mickey Mouse comic all looked like it was done by the same person, and it was so adherent to a house style. I would have no interest in them. What's fun about them is I've got a favorite Archie artist. I've got a favorite Mickey Mouse artist. Mm-hmm. I've got a favorite Donald Duck artist. And if the, if the on-model police were around back then, you couldn't, you couldn't even say that. You wouldn't know it, you know? So besides the fact that there's no original characters, even the ones that are around, because people would mm-hmm. say, well, you know, why don't you try and work on, you know, whatever, Little Mermaid, Roger Rabbit, whatever. It holds no appeal to me whatsoever, you know? If you're doing a superhero book and you, uh, you know, three different, 20 different, 50 different guys draw Spider-Man. Yeah. If you draw Peter Parker as a 20 ish guy with kind of short hair and maybe a little curl on his forehead and Spider-Man, you know, you got the leeway to do what you want. You want your Spider-Man to have bigger eyes and a bigger chest, you know, symbol or webbing underneath or smaller eyes or, you know, your, your, uh, Todd McFarlane and you redesign webbing or whatever. You have the leeway to do that, but you don't have that with, with, um, comics anymore i'd see a little bit of it in the spongebob comics and my friend hillary barta works on those and i there is some leeway but some of it's done because they're being done in styles that are like parodying real thing that really genres a little bit but so there's nothing there's it's not there you know and i it pre-existed me and it's gone it's kind of interesting that you said that because um i'm still working on i'm trying to get it out but there's been delays uh to my warren kramer book I'm working with the Kramer family and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have actual interviews with Warren Kramer. He did basically two lengthy interviews in his lifetime, which I'm reproducing as best as I can, considering I'm putting other interviews and everything. And um, one of the things he apparently was annoyed with is he always wanted everybody to look like his own style. Which is probably why you said, "Oh, Ernie Cologne, that can't right, right. tell him apart." Well, Ernie Cologne well, was good job. at imitating yeah. and mimicking yeah. other styles. Um, 
But like the one that used to drive Kramer nuts was Sid Couch, who did a lot of oh, sure. things like that because he had his own way of doing things, little pointy noses, and the, the hands would kind of go up and like this. If you look at him, it's kind of an odd way of him to draw, and it doesn't appeal to everyone. I loved it. I thought his style was really amazing to me. So it's like, and I See, became friends with him before he passed and stuff. I, well, I'm looking forward, I would be looking very forward to reading that book. But yeah, you make a good point. See, it's like, I didn't grow up with Bob Bowling's little Archie, okay? And I know it's supposed to be really great, and I take people's word for it, but sometimes the ship has sailed. You can read stuff as, you know, I've read Little Lulu as an adult that I didn't read as a kid, and I was floored by it. But um, so Little little Archie, when I was a kid, was drawn by a guy named Dexter Taylor, you know? Yeah. And people disparage that, but I'm like, no, I find I find it very charming. And as far as, as far as you know, that goes, uh, my friend Mark Warden uh, years ago put together a guide to all the Archie artists, you know? Yeah which effectively gave me names for the people I didn't like. Like, oh, I guess I don't like Sam Schwartz, or I guess I don't like Bill Vigoda. <laughs> but um, but yeah. he did it by, in a, in a really fun way, is he found all their mannerisms and used it. So one guy in particular would always draw like one of the hands like this, you know, and, and he'd find three or four examples of that. And he'd name those. That was the silly millimeter longer hand or whatever. And, um, right. but it's a, it was a great tool to go, oh, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. Because, Chuck and I and Mike Tiefenbacher would sit with like we 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 became enamored of the ACG or you know the the 40s giggle ha ha cuckoo happy super mouse mm -hmm. um and and all those books were being drawn by uh for the most part by animators who were moonlighting you know mm -hmm. and so some of them to this day to me are the best comic book you know funny animal cartooning of all time but most not all of it was signed you know and we we became very big fans of Jack Bradbury right and mm -hmm. and his stuff was signed for those books but we didn't know he also drew a lot of the mickey mouse strips and stuff that we liked mm -hmm. and we didn't know that guy's name right we didn't know the name of the, the mickey mouse guy but he, he instead of making a solid black nose he would sort of scribble the shading in and mm -hmm. we literally called him shady nose guy right because we don't know what he's called <laughs> then one day we're looking at some bradbury thing in a giggle or a haha -ha comic and this is a great way to, to determine who artists are because if you're drawing a Mickey Mouse comic or, or, you know, like a Chip and Dale story and the story calls for a pig or a porcupine or a mouse that's not normally part of their world, then the artist usually draws his own version of a mouse or a pig right. or whatever it is. So we notice these similarities in some of these characters. And then we notice like Bradbury was real big on flying sweat drops off of characters' heads. And one day it was like this big epiphany for us. We're at my house going through these piles of comics. We're like, wait a minute, Shady Nose Guy is Jack Bradbury, you know? <laughs> and then we found out that Ken, you know, that um, Al Hubbard was probably my favorite funny animal cartoonist after Walt Kelly. He did, you know, he'd done all the Disney uh, movie adaptations, you know, Jungle Book, Peter Pan, where it did all that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, that that's, goes back to what I said before, just the fun of discovery and putting it together yeah. and having favorites, you know? Yeah, I know all the Archie guys. There are two that I particularly like. I don't hate the other ones, but they don't, they don't, yeah. they don't speak to me, you know. So right, yeah. And I'm the same way with Archie. The same way. I don't know if you collected Dennis the Menace. I did a Dennis the Menace book. I do have, and I know I did. I would not have known then that it was Al Wiseman. Yeah. But um, but they are absolutely beautiful, and I love them because they had themes like the circus or the zoo or trips to Mexico and stuff like that. I mean, and in the same way that Ketchum himself is almost like. If you if you had just clipped every Ketchum thing and put it in a book, it'd be the best resource in the world for a cartoonist. For because the guy not only drew great characters, he drew great coffee tables and end tables and lamps and stuff yeah. like that. 
And that's the same thing that struck me about those, those Dennis books. I mean, the style is not exactly Ketchum's, but his, his inking style and his crosshatching and stuff to this moment in my mind is just absolutely beautiful. And I remember thinking that like, I should hang on to the circus book. Cause if I ever have to draw anything in a circus, this is a great thing to flip through and, and get a <laughs> sense of, you know, and I, I have heard, and I guess it's true that, and I don't think too many people do this. If you look at my stuff, I draw the same old overstuffed cartoon chair over and over again, but I heard that Ketchum would keep a Sears catalog handy. And that's what he would use as reference. And if you look at his stuff, it's always contemporary, you know, whether it's the clothing or the furniture or the pictures on the walls. And, mm-hmm. and, and I foolishly as a kid took uh, catch him for granted. You know, he's in the paper every day. I did. I just didn't see it. And then I went to a, a, an art exhibit that was at a university of Chicago or traveling comic art exhibit. I go down there to see a Barney Google um, strip in real life because I was a big fan of uh, Debeck. And, um, and there's Crazy Cat and all these other strips I like. But the amazing thing was by the time I went home, I had spent more time staring at a Dennis the Menace Sunday uh, <laughs> than I'd ever given thought to Dennis the Menace in my whole life. And, and from that moment, I was like, you know, like the light went on. I'm like, this is unbelievable stuff. So many people, their work is deceptively simple, you know, yeah. dots for eyes and, you know, the short cartooning shorthand. And you don't and sometimes you don't see the, the, the real genius of their drawing, you know. I think it is true when catch him, you know, it's like, um, I was a fan of the comic book first, probably because that was more sure accessible. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, since I grew up in the seventies, um, Bill Williams was the main guy, which he wasn't bad. I mean, everybody loves Weissman, but then you'd see, like, I didn't know like you that there was different artists. So it's like, I go, it's, uh, I, I used to think Weissman just was ketchup. I didn't know it was yeah, somebody different. I would have thought so. Too. And, and then um, I thought Owen Fitzgerald was like, oh, he's getting older and looser and sloppier just because he has a deadline or something. I didn't know he was a different guy. You know? yeah. And then, you know, but it, later I figured out, oh, well, you know, this artist isn't as good as this one. Oh, okay. You know, and, and things like that. I did the same thing with Harvey and everything else. But yeah, initially... I, you know, even with the different styles, you think the same person drew the whole thing, unless it, it's mentioned on there, like in a Marvel comic. So, you know, my my uh, brother-in-law, who was a dear friend, was a friend through school, and ended up being my brother-in-law. He's not a, an artist in any way, but we, he said he told me about something really fascinating. Like when he was watching cartoons on TV, let's say that like he was watching the Woody Woodpecker show, and they showed an earlier one where like, you know, it's much different design character and stuff. He said, I don't know. I just thought the regular guy was sick and somebody else did those, you know? <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of true in some ways. But um, We used to say that as kids about the Flintstones because they're all in reruns. And I none of us knew Mel Blanc had a car accident or anything and they had to have Dawes Butler replace him temporarily. And, yeah. Uh, he was laid up and then uh, Mel Blanc was laid up in the hospital for months reporting lines and everything like that. And so we used to say, these are the episodes that Mel Blanc forgot how to do the Barney. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, years later you go, Oh, that's not really what happened at all. No. But, you, know, you know, And as a kid, that kind of stuff sticks out to you. It's like, Hey, Dr. Quest sounds different today or whatever, you know? Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> So, um, one of the things you said in the vast stuff that you've done over the whole years um, that I was kind of curious about because I wrote some little actual notes here ahead of time in case you didn't have anything to say. Um, oh, like that would happen. <laughs> um, have you thrown so the you, notes away yet? They, yeah. 
Um, no, I want to go back and talk about toy designs for McDonald's and Burger King. Because I'm always kind of curious about that. Um, you're talking about uh, how strict they are now about design and stuff like that. How were they then, and how does one design a toy? Well, um, it's nothing I ever it's nothing I ever imagined doing, but I always liked toys, right? And I particularly liked figural type things like Disney Kins and things I had as a kid, Marks figures and stuff. So when I heard about this, I had had some toy design experience, right? So basically, basically the way it works with a like a, a QSR, quick serve restaurant thing, is that um, you basically they they make a deal with the property owner, right? They they strike their own deal. They're going to do a promotion. Promotions generally run, you know, four to six weeks, something like that. Um, back when I started, and still for the most part, um, there would be no idea of what that would be. That was your job to figure that out. So they say, okay, we're going to do there. We're going to do Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That was one of the first ones I remember working on for McDonald's. So um, basically, what you know is this: they want to do four toys or eight toys or six toys, whatever it is, that's decided up, up front, how, how, the number of toys. Then usually you might, you know, these days, one of the prime questions anybody would ask is, what's the hierarchy of characters that you want to include? Like if there's only going to be, if there can only be eight characters, which eight do you want? Just so you're focusing on, the, on those. Other than that, it's totally up to you. You could, it could be, oh, I want to do hand puppets. Oh, I want to do, you know, wind up toys. Oh, I want to do whatever, you know, um, and so generally speaking, um, we would show two to three, early, early on, probably three, maybe four, complete collections. We'd work, you'd get a certain amount of time. I'd work with, I had a, a group of guys that were really good, like me, pop culture, crazy guys, toy collectors. And um, you would show like a certain number of complete collections. Like you don't just show one toy. It's got to make sense for the whole the whole thing, you know what I mean? So that Snow White thing, it was figural, but they each did something different. You know, there was a, there was a, a, a one of the dwarves pushing a cart and a diamond rotated in the cart. Okay. There was a figurine that was like a two, two headed figurine. Like a top was the wicked queen and the bottom was the witch, the hag. Mm-hmm. And you could snap a black dress around her. So if you snapped it up the one way, she was the witch. If you'd reversed it, no. it would be the queen. So that would be a theme, right? But another theme might be, you know, puppets or whatever. So uh, we would show those. Uh, they would choose what they liked. Then you would work with Disney for approvals and stuff like that. Depending on the property, I, spent, I used to spend a lot of time um, traveling to Hollywood. If it, was, if it was a movie that was being made, so we would work like a year out on toys. If the movie's being made, you'd have to be in constant contact with them to find out what was going on with the movie. So in a so lot of cases- So what was an example of that? Like Aladdin or something? Yeah, Aladdin or a good one example. Of one of the last ones I, uh, I worked on was um, Lilo and Stitch. But yeah, any of those, oh, yeah. Aladdin, Little Mermaid, whatever. So they'd show you reels that consisted of um, storyboards and then all of a sudden there'd be a section of pencil animation and then you know a reel that would give you an idea and whatever reference they could give you. One of the biggest differences, and it kind of goes back to that, what I was saying about um, style guides, is that I remember this specifically. So, you know, if you think about it, the, the Seven Dwarfs characters are kind of earthy colors in the, in the cartoon, right? I mean, right. that was the first cartoon where Disney like went nuts for realism and everything. And so we would look at it and be like, well, we don't want, you know, Doc to have this, this pale ochre hat and this, this burgundy vest. It's not bright. It's not color. So, we would just up it to like really bright colors and everybody accepted the idea that it's a toy. So 
you work to the strengths of the item. That's that's one of the things I hate about licensing now and why the same art's used everywhere. Because what's great is like if I could draw if I can draw a comic book of uh, name something recent, I don't know, Encanto, and um, and I could ink it like Will Eisner versus just simple line drawings. Wouldn't it be better for the thing to seem more lush? But it isn't. It's like it's all homogenized. So then you would you could work to the strengths of a toy. A, to, a toy's got to be appealing. It's being held in your hand. It's not something flashing by on the screen, and it's not a drawing, and it's not a picture in a book. Um, that would never happen today. It, does, it could be the ugliest, muddiest colors in the world. You would still have to use those colors and stuff like that. So that was a that was a big one. But basically, what it amounts to is. Um, it's just like drawing a comic or something. It's like you've got a blank sheet in front of you. The goal is a toy, a fun toy. And I think the key to it for myself and all the people I worked with is um, we're only technically adults. You know, you had to deal with a lot of adults and it was, it was, you know, could be like just horrendous. The kinds of observations and criticisms that people might have because they thought, well, a kid can't do this and a kid won't know that. And, you know, inside you're going, I'm buying this stuff today. Okay. The month before I started working on Happy Meals, I remember eating a Bambi Happy Meal parked outside my toy company job with with uh, Bambi on my dashboard. You know, <laughs> we were making stuff that we wanted. And if you think about it, everything that you ever enjoyed, that was the philosophy. You know, yeah. nobody did focus groups for Henson. Nobody did focus groups for Jay Ward. Nobody did focus groups for the Warner Brothers characters for the most part. It was just people that were talented doing what they thought. If I like this, somebody else will like it, you know. And, and that's what the toys were. We were essentially coming up with toys we wanted ourselves. The highest praise I could give any toy that we worked on was, I want this for my toy shelf. Yeah. And the only thing that might change that is we worked on a lot of properties I couldn't care less about later mm -hmm. on, you know, Disney TV programs like Recess or Bobby's World or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, but one of the last things I worked on was the 100 Years of Disney collection that came out when it was uh, an actual 100th, 100th year. I think it was Disney's 100th birthday. And um, it was it was a tie-in with Walt Disney World, and I had this idea. I like Disneykins when I was a kid. I don't know if you know what they are, but the little. I know what they are. So we just decided let's do a hundred toys, each of which is just a PVC figure of a character on a gold base, and we'll have a little label with the character's name and the year they debuted, and we'll do a hundred characters. You know, mm. and it's still one of my favorite. Um, things now one of the things i learned about the aesthetics of toys which i didn't i didn't know ahead of time i used to look at a toy and go why are thumpers ears like this you know like <laughs> and, and then i found out later it's all it's all safety gauges you know if thumpers ears were like this these ears would pass through the safety gauge and go and it gets stuck in a kid's throat so one of the constant battles you always have is maintaining the aesthetics of the cartoon the way that you as a cartoonist would appreciate it but also um, that they have to be tested for so many different things to keep to keep them safe, you know. So these figures, um, as generally speaking, are sculpted really well from drawings that we did. And, you know, you collect 100 of them on a desk. It's pretty unbelievable looking. They're very cool. Um, the funny thing is that they wanted to, um, we had the label on one side with the character name. And as a collector, I love that, you know, look, look, it's Thumper, you know, 1946 or whatever, yeah. but they wanted a Disney world logo as well, a sticker on the opposite side. And they wanted that up front, which we felt is ruining the toy. Like we don't want to look at all those toys with the same Disney world logo. We want those names. So, but the way the toys were designed, they had what's called a mushroom. So it's like the bottom of the toy has a little plug on it that goes through another piece and pops through and locks it. 
So as it turns out, you could turn those bases. Oh. <laughs> so even though they came with the Disney World logo forward, we could just turn them all around and put them on our desk with the thumper along you know, forward or whatever. But it was an impressive, it was an impressive bunch of stuff. And it, for me, essentially, it was like a modern day Disneykins. You know, it's like let the appeal of, so I guess my point is, I had the Disneykins set when I was in kindergarten. And, you know, there I was, you know, whatever it was, 45 years later, 40, you know, hmm. and 40 years later, and still excited about the idea of getting some really nice figures of characters. And in that case, a lot of characters that had never been figures before either, you know, which is always fun. So, now, uh, not to belabor it. Well, yes, I am belaboring it, no, but ahead. I'm just kind of curious about it. But um, so you did the, the initial design, but I mean, some of the toys you're talking about, like the Queen and the Witch, whatever the heck, um, have physically moving parts. So that takes some engineering and stuff like that. You, would you be doing that, or you hand that off to like well, we have, a draftsman that knows how no, to do that yeah. sort of? This is what I would stuff. say. We all we all love toys. We all understood the, the basics of toys and a certain amount of physics. I don't know how many gear teeth are on the gears inside the toy, but I know what a gear gear action can produce. You know. Okay. So with the basic working knowledge that we would do that now the um you know the engineers would have to make that work and generally speaking we knew what would work sometimes it wouldn't work sometimes they might improve on the function beyond what we wanted um and then between that you know and you'd work with that then so you'd kind of like review that and make comments and why why don't we do this can we move this arm like this you know whatever and um and then hope and with the sculpt so a sculptor would sculpt but engineers would engineer it a sculptor would physically sculpt it in those days out of wax models and stuff very beautiful and we would review those and go no make the nose a little smaller turn the eyes this way whatever mm-hmm. um and then um that's that's the way it go, would be you know produced ultimately and at every step of the way we'd be reviewing something working models just looks lo- looks like <laughs> turns out looks like and works like which are kind of two different things um <laughs> today you know the sculpting is all done digitally and stuff like that so mm-hmm. you're not you're not looking at an you know a, an actual physical um model anymore but basically it's basically it's the same kind of so yeah i don't mean to suggest that there aren't other disciplines or roles in this because there are but it all kind of starts with that blank page and like what do you you know what should we do so i'm just curious because you know i'm the total end user i have no knowledge of how these toys kind of get about to come about especially like certain ones i collected over the years are like they did some tiny tunes ones and some animated Actually, I worked on I, I worked on all of those. Okay, I didn't know if you did those, so that's yeah. why I'm not assuming even, you did or didn't. I was just kind of no, yeah. I did. Those I, are pretty elaborate, if memory serves, about you know the functionality of things yeah. that they did. You know, it's like there characters were, inside of spinning wheels and yes, you know, yes. you know and those, you know, spinning uh, umbrellas or something like that. Yeah. If I remember go go like dodo that. in a yeah. in a hamster. Yeah, so dodo. I mean, it's like they're pretty elaborate, and I go, wow, somebody took some time to do this. You know, oh, yeah, we well, know a simple toy that you just get your meal. You know, and yeah. actual kids probably like eh, whatever. <laughs> we, no, we really enjoyed working. See, that would be an example of a property we enjoyed working on. You know, yeah. and. Um, because we were excited at the time that the show was coming out and stuff like that. So yeah, that's a good example of, I want these toys myself. I want it to be yeah. something I want, you know? And I don't know if you're this way, but like recently, I, and I forgot the name of it. I have the thing in the other room. I care right in, but um, there's these kind of like sturdy cardboard books now that they sell over at like Barnes and Noble. And they, the whole purpose is to really sell the toys. There's like 10 little, figurines in the bottom and i got one oh, yeah, at christmas yeah. time for the rudolph special 
And they had little figurines of Sam the Snowman, all the ranked bass figures and everything. But really like nice figures, right? Yeah. And it's like, I said, wow, where was this 50 years ago? <laughs> you they're know, not that it's ex- like, you know, but I'm buying it now. You know? And they're it's not like, that expensive. I know no, they're I, not, you know, I, I, it's like, this is, and I could see why you would design the Happy Meal toys to bring it back to that, you right. know, for yourself, you know, forget the little kids. I want this for myself because I don't have. Uh, this character from Snow White, or like, which is a have, big thing, right? You yeah, want to, you yeah. want to get the characters, and I, can, and I, I've always appreciated. I'm not a fan of Scooby Doo or whatever, even though I've worked on a number of Scooby Doo things. Yeah. But no matter what, if a if a toy bears a really like a really strikingly good likeness to the property, I love that, you know. So like those books you're talking about, I have a I have a three year old granddaughter who's in love with Peppa Pig. You know, I don't even know mm. if you know the character. Yeah. And I bought one of those books at Costco or something. It's like, yeah. it's, you know, five pages of cardboard stories in the back little pocket and a little play mat. And it had 10 Peppa Pig cast characters. And that was my really my first exposure to it. It's a very funny cartoon, by the way. But um, I looked at it and I'm like, these things are perfect. They look just like the drawings, even right yeah. down to like little tiny stick man arms that they have in the cartoons. And I look, I still look at them because we babysit her from time and the, the toys are here. And I'm like, these are really great. And that book was like 10 bucks or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And even in the days of like, you know, buying PVC figures off the counter at a card store or something, that's a lot of PV, good PVC figures with a lot of decoration for that amount of money, you know, and, and they're great collectibles. I love that stuff. Okay. See, I was just kind of curious about it. <laughs> oh, no. Um, let's see. What other stuff have you done? Oh, you mentioned earlier, and we can bring it up again because I'm kind of curious about it too, uh, your children's TV curator at Chicago's Museum of Broadcast Communications. So yeah. tell me about that. What, what, it, what does that entail? Or is it, just it doesn't a, entail a, a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a, good, it's a good title, but I think I've earned it. But it's, um, here, here it is in a nutshell. Chicago had some really great local kid shows. The, the big three at WGN, which was one of the biggest stations in the country, was Bozo Circus, which is yeah. the Bozo Circus that lasted for 40 years. Ray Rayner and Friends with a guy named Ray Rayner, who's a really wacky guy. Mm-hmm. And Garfield Goose and Friends, mm-hmm. which was a puppet show that lasted for 35 years. One of my earliest TV obsessions. And the premise of it is that there's a goose that thinks he's the king of the United States. And the other characters are animal characters that live in his castle. And there's a human being, the host, Fraser Thomas, who was the, was the prime minister who was the host. Bookending that is at the end of kids' TV, basically, when ho- you know, local kid shows were still being produced with hosts versus like, I'm just going to put three Tom and Jerry's in the same half hour and not pay anybody, um, was a show called Cartoon Town, which is like a legend here in Chicago. And if you're not from Chicago, many people people know Giggle Snort Hotel, which was a syndicated puppet show with the same characters in a different setting. And as a kid, I was obsessed with Bill Jackson, the host, BJ and Dirty Dragon and his puppets and his characters. And well past the age that most people would think you would be. I mean, frankly, we're both well past the age of any of this stuff, right. target age. But um, right. I love that stuff. And so I saved whatever I could. I collected stuff. In the mid-90s, uh, a good friend of mine, Steve Smith, was publishing a really, a really fine classic monster magazine called Monster Scene. And um, I had mentioned to him that I would love to do a book about Chicago kids TV, like a magazine. He said, well, I'll publish it. Let's do it. So long, I'll make a long, long story short. I met Bill Jackson, didn't know him. He was a childhood hero of mine. We did a, a really bang up job on that first issue and lost our shirt because it's a pretty slick magazine. But, um, but that's how I became friends with him. 
promoting that magazine on rate local radio and stuff got me heard by the broadcast museum people. And in those days, inevitably, if anybody called in, this is what I'm talking about now is like the early nineties. Um, someone would say, Oh man, I love that. I, you know, where can I see it? And I would always say the same thing, go to the museum of broadcast communications. They have study booths. You can request whatever the show is you want to see. You can sit and watch it. Well, eventually they'd heard me a few times and someone called me and said, you know, you're very respectful to the museum. We're looking to get people in here that are, you know, not necessarily the age of Fibber McGee and Molly, but might remember TV and stuff. And we've got a new board, a junior board. Would you be part of it? I said, yes. So right as the first thing they want to know is, could I get Bill Jackson, who was mentioned a legend here, to come to Chicago and reappear? And so I put together shows like that. I put it together with him, public public events. And then he donated his puppets. So now the puppets needed to be displayed. And since I am an artist, I came up with display things, you know, and stuff like that. And, and so over the years, um, I produced uh, a number of uh, public appearance things. We, we did one with Sven Gulli, the original Sven Gulli, and then Richard Coase at the time, who was just starting out. And um, so anything display-wise, the placards in the museum that would be written about the stuff um, uh, were, are written by me. One of, the, one of the big events was in 2001. They wanted kind of a comprehensive kids' TV thing. So we basically invited back every surviving Chicago Kid Show host that was still alive. And sadly, today, this was in 2001, they are all dead. Um, but uh, we had a – you heard, ever heard of a TV show called Super Circus? Yes. It was, it was like a national success, one of the first successful kids TV shows, largely because of this uh, platinum blonde named Mary Hartline, yeah. who was the band leader. <laughs> if you read any TV history books, they're like, um, a lot of dads watch Super Circus. Yes. Um, <laughs> but we had Mary, we had Mary there. She did the ribbon cutting. Oh, she wow. was still alive yeah. and stuff like that. So it's just basically, you know, if they want someone to interview, if they want someone to comment, if the newspapers call about something, if we want to do an event, if like, hey, we're going to move this, we're going to, the museum's relocating, can we get new displays? I've done all that kind of stuff. And so basically what that makes me to my great delight is sort of like the, you know, the, uh, the gatekeeper, the caretaker of a lot of things that meant a lot to me as a kid, you know? So when the Garfield Goose puppets or the Bill Jackson puppets, you know, come out or for some kind of appearance where we needed to make new displays, my son and I recreated the set of Cartoon Town. Like I did drawings, he built these big sets we painted. It's just stuff like that. So it's it's like all the stuff we're talking about. It's complete labor of love stuff. I absolutely love doing it. And and because I do, and because I think because I'm an artist and I'm good at it, I put I, I put way more effort into it than if it had just fallen to somebody on a staff at a museum, you know? Right. And like everything else, like the cover of your total TV book or something, I want it to be, that's not a cue. I want it to be what I would want to see. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, it's like, I just want it to be something I would like. And that's the yeah. same thing with the toys and everything else, you know? Now, is this total volunteer work or do you actually get paid? To this, no, it's, it's completely volunteer work. Yeah. Um, the, the place has never had a lot of money to throw around. Yeah. And then, so that's even more an example of, so, you know, and I, I can remember spending tons and tons of time on some of this stuff. And mm -hmm. it's like, but, you know, I never, aside from just having to work it around my regular schedule, I always came back to the same thing. I don't want, I don't want to go, let's put it this way. If there was an exhibit of all these same shows and I went there and I thought it was crap, it would just disappoint me tremendously. Yeah. And all I would do is look at it and go, gee, why didn't they do this? Hey, why didn't they put this frame around the TV? Yeah. Hey, why didn't they do this? That would have been great. And then it's sort of like, well, you know, you can do it yourself. And if, if you're not happy with it, you got nobody to blame but yourself. But my experience has been that people are really happy with it. And they're really happy that someone who goes the extra mile, you know, 
to really to and it's just like everything else it's like what i said before about his about fans being the historians it's like the that show i was talking about garfield goose was on for 35 years you know there were less than five shows in existence from that because they threw them out or they taped over them or whatever. So it's, it's fans that will preserve history. It's fans that will love, love something enough to go the extra mile to everybody else in the equation. It's just business. And if it's not making money into the garbage, it goes, you know, so that's why I like doing it. And that's why I will continue to do it. You know? So I have two more subjects and then I'll let you go. But one of course is, you know, Finally, we'll show one of the pieces you did. Yes. <laughs> this the is Alvin. for the Alvin Show book. And that was the first uh, piece you did for me. Now, originally, you were going to draw uh, David Seville, and then we kind of settled on putting his photo. Or yeah. Vice versa. And, it worked. <clears throat> well, you know what my thinking was? I, you, if you do a character of somebody that nobody knows what they look like, it's kind of a wasted effort in a way. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you know what Ross Bagdasarian looks like, and I know what he looks like, but 95% of even people who bought the book probably yeah. didn't know what he looked like. But and I think the, it worked because in the earliest Chipmunk albums, he was right. shown his photo while you know, the rest right. were drawn. Well, Although they're that, drawn like realistic chipmunks, they weren't drawn the cartoony way, but still. <laughs> well, another another reason it worked for me and what I was thinking of when I suggested that was I was also a huge monkeys fan. I still am, but I was a huge monkeys <laughs> fan as a kid, which led to me buying a lot of teen magazines, like 16 and stuff. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. When I was like 11. Mm-hmm. And 16 magazine had this great approach to covers. They would They would do like a scene of like a bunch of people at the beach or jumping in the water but it would all be the teen heartthrobs you know davy jones and mark Lindsay. right so they would cartoon the bodies and the scenarios so that they could have them doing whatever they wanted yeah. sort of like jib jab cards if you've ever seen yeah. those let's see and, it, it actually worked i mean they did here's an yeah, harmonic ad so they actually right. had a photo and they had yeah. a drawing of the chipmunks on there so it's not but that's what i was thinking of i just yeah. thought okay yeah. this way he's as yeah. recognizable as he can be but i can put him in this setting and then to do the opening of the show like that, you know, the one where traditionally Alvin is in the in the control room doing that stuff just right. struck me as kind of now on this cover, did you have it already designed before you I forgot. Did I approach you? Did you approach me? I don't remember. Which one are we talking about? The the chipmunks one. Do you, do, I think, were you already drawing something like this just no, for fun? Or? I did that specifically for you. I think I think I'd read or you had posted something on Facebook that said, you know. You were doing it. I probably said, "Who's? Do you have someone to do the cover?" Oh, that's true. Or I was so, looking for a cover artist. Actually, yeah, I'm looking for that, a cover artist again, but I don't know if you, I can get away with it. Disney is a little bit more stricter, but I yeah, you'll I don't find have, out, my friend. What? You'll find out. Yeah. So uh, I, I may not. Have, I, I'd say I'd love to have you do a Disney cover, but I may yeah. not be able to do it anyway. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But no, and that, and why did I, why did I want to? It's because Alvin is, you know, probably my top 10 favorite animated TV shows. It's such a quirky, weird show. The voices are great. They're funny. And, and it's like, um, I just to digress, I did um, video box art, uh, about 10 boxes, I think, for home releases of Milton the Monster. Oh, yeah. So I saw this article where this guy said they're releasing them. And I contacted the guy because I, I, I love Milton the Monster. I'm like, do you? And I knew the art would stink because with most of these TV license things, there isn't really a lot of really good stuff. You might collect everything, right. but the number of things that are actually really good is always limited, right? right. And I, it's a terrible Milton the Monster stuff. So I'm just like, I'd like to do this. And they, they're like, oh, great. We don't pay hardly anything. I'm like, I don't care because I would just yeah. like to do it. Then I found out it was a company in New Zealand I was talking to. I didn't even know this. I ended up yeah. doing, 
doing the whole job for them. And then a few years back, Shout Factory or somebody was putting out the complete Milton the Monster on right. DVD. And I contacted them and I sent them this art and, I, and I'd and i seen some really, and the, the fin- finished product is absolutely heinous. It's just horrible. <laughs> and I said, I will do this, you know, no money. I just am a fan and I've, there's going to be a complete set. I would love for it to be cool and really get the property, you know, really use elements that make sense. Even, you know, and me, even in my own mind, something like, putting Seville in the control room that's straight out of the cartoon openings where Alvin would be, you know, it's like something that fans will notice. And so they were like, well, you know, they had no time. It was already done and they, yeah. they wouldn't undo it. But that, that, that killed me. Yeah, so. Cause I remember the DVD and it said, I didn't think your artwork was on. No, there, it's so, not. Yeah. But so I, the, I did, yeah. but I did some really fun art for the things incorporating fearless fly and Milton in the same scenarios mm-hmm. and stuff and, mm-hmm. and jokes that were actually, you know, jokes in the context of Milton the Monster as far as the scenarios and stuff like that. So. Now, the second one you did for me. Now, did you have this? This is no, yeah. television scrapbook. Did you have this drawing already yes. created? That's in what that, it was. It in was that case, one. yes. I, I've done a lot of things like that. I did a funny company thing. I like the total, I, I love the total TV stuff, particularly the stuff I, lo- I enjoyed the most as a kid. So that would have been Twinkles and King and Odie and, you know, Underdog and all the per- peripheral characters of that. And I'm a real, really f- a big fan of like covers on things like Dell Giants and stuff, yeah. where they're sort of representative, like <laughs> a Christmas book that might have a Christmas wreath, but all Mickey and all his friends are popping out behind it designs that I think could be t-shirts and could be record covers and could be, you know, giant comic covers. So I wanted to do something with all those characters. And I got the idea that like a castle with King and Odie, since they kind of kicked it all off as if everybody was visiting a King and the King Leonardo castle would be a fun mm-hmm. thing to do. So I did it for that reason. I did it because it's another example of there's, I'll digress a million for the millionth time. If you look up funny company, there is no decent art of funny company anywhere. You can search the internet for it. I've done it. So I just decided I'm going to make a children's book. That's what I, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But there's no, there's no, when I say that there's no like great shot of all the characters in front of the clubhouse or whatever. So I did one myself. I do a lot of this stuff because I want to see it, you know, and that was Mm -hmm. the King and Odie thing Mm -hmm. to this day. It's one of my favorite things I ever did. And so when you said, I think you said you announced the book and then somebody said, he said, he said, you said, I need a cover. And I think I posted it. I said, how about this for the cover? Yeah. And you said, yes. And I was yeah. like, okay, great. Well, because it covers this, all the pages. This cuts into my like inner child, as it were, because as a child, I always love pictures like this. Like I have like various books, like, you know, Disney children's books where they'll, uh, I can remember this one well. It's like, it's a box set of like four Disneyland books. And it's just reprints from Golden Books and stuff. I got them, yeah. Yeah, so you probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, they did Mother Goose pages or something. And one of them is the old woman in the, in the shoe. And it's a double-page spread. It has, like, every character yeah. under the sun in this thing. It's like you got, you know, the characters from, uh, you know, I was going to say Three Amigos. I meant the Three Caballeros. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And you got the Three Little Pigs. And you got, you know, yeah. as a kid, I go, what's this character? Oh, years later, I found out it was Clara Cluck or something. Right, you know, it's right. like, you know, all these obscure characters. And so this is like the stuff that I ate up as a kid. You know, it's like, I may not know like this character here, Twinkles, but right. I certainly know Underdog and you know, right. Tennessee Tuxedo. And it's yeah. just, they're all there. They're all together, know, right? you know? 
And, that's, and there's a number of, you know, Hanna-Barbera, Hanna-Barbera had a comic called Bandwagon, a gold key yeah, comic where yeah. all the characters be on, or there's a Rocky giant where there's like a haunted house and all the Jay Ward characters are in the windows or out yeah. front. So, you know, I, I love that kind uh, of thing. The other thing I liked on Hanna-Barbera is if you open to the Indicia page, they always had like a little... Those little rubber those, stamp looking Yeah, things. it was like a rubber stamp of all the characters. I guess it was a model sheet miniature or something like I that. Know. I don't know. And only they was. did that. Yeah, and know. I said, you know, if I could have a complete collection of those, that's what I wanted as a kid, you know. It's like it's funny now you say that because I noticed those too, and I love that. But you know, you're 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 squinting your eyes to make out, and the great thing was it was the full cast of whatever it was, yeah. you know. Yeah. But I've never seen any of those full size, and I've never yeah. seen any of that art. Well, it's kind of funny. I'm gonna go back to the Chipmunks book. Um, I had to do that for this um, on page three. You know that famous logo there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there's not like a good copy of that i had to get i had to scan one of my record albums and i just kept blowing it up and you know hoping it would not get too out of focus you know i know and it's like you know i would love to have a nice clean stat of it you know but you know that's the the kind of stuff and i'm not i'm not offering to do this with that but that's the kind of thing i will see myself and just go i'm gonna fix this you know yeah there's a great bugs bunny record cover in this jones style he's sitting at a piano and all the characters but and I found like good sized JPEGs, but they're always real muddy or dirty. And finally, I just thought I'm just going to go in and totally clean this up and rework the lines and stuff. And I, all the stuff just ends up as screensavers. But whenever it pops up, I'm like, oh, I love that drawing. You know, mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite. Now, now, go, now the funny thing is, on, on so on this book, you know, you did the cover, and then I realized, oh, I don't have a back cover. But then I found like some cool pictures from an article. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Of, yeah. You know, Ross Bagdasarian making a bunch of funny faces. And I said, well, that. That will work. Originally, yeah, it was going to be around the perimeter, but I need some more text, so we had to take a few of them out. But that's where that one was. No, that worked very well. But in the case on this one, you said you were inspired, like, from the Dell Giants. Or, yeah. to me, it like it reminds me of, like, a Richard Scarry book or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or a record know, album. You know, some children's song. book or something. So, anyway, I got... I didn't have a back cover, and I said, well, I don't want to just repeat this on the back. And so I got a different artist. Sorry, I didn't get you twice. No, I know. I got, I got Man Hansel, and I said... Can you do it where it's like a golden book, you know, where they have oh, the yeah, characters yeah, around yeah, the perimeter yeah, yeah. and they, they yeah. put some text in the middle and that's, yeah. that's, so it kind of comes across yeah, yeah. as a giant golden book and it that's what works. I was kind of <laughs> achieving. <laughs> so, well, you know, I, and, and a book like that and your other total TV book, which I enjoyed very much. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember as a kid too, like buying coloring books from shows I liked because I wanted to keep essentially in my head, even as a kid, I want a record of this. Right. Yeah. And there isn't anything, you know, so certain coloring books I had like super six or something. There was oh, yeah. never, there's never any other product of those things for the right. most part. Yeah. So there was a way of, of hanging on to it. And any books like the one you did where you collect a lot of the imagery and stuff of that. I love that kind of stuff because I love having it in one place and because there's always some stuff I've never seen, you know what I mean? But it's a way to hang on to it. Besides, I mean, we live in, a, in an era that's an embarrassment of riches. You know, anything you like, you can watch on DVD or Blu-ray or whatever. Right. Versus when you were kids, you know, I think I'll buy this two-minute Magilla Gorilla eight-millimeter film so I can, for a moment, catch a glimpse of Magilla Gorilla or something yeah. in my house. But, and it's black and white with subtitles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's only half of a six-million cartoon. Right. <laughs> um. So 
I have one more question, and I actually I feel embarrassed, but I haven't seen it yet because it's on at the oddest time. But you were on Collector's Call once on MeTV. Yes, ex- I was. Talk about that. I was just kind of curious, and I will try to catch it on a rerun. I hate it that they only show it once a week, and it's like ten o'clock at night on Sunday night, which I'm asleep. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, allow me. To, I I will plug this. I have nothing to gain from it if anyone goes there. But I do have a website. It's called um, www.jimingle.net. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. Anyway, um, there's a there's a page in there that's radio and TV interviews and stuff that I've done on a variety of topics. So you can see it there if you really want to see it. But oh. what happened was before, before it ever came on, because we were the ninth episode, so I didn't I know anything about it. I got a phone call from someone who said they had been given my name by somebody at the Leo Burnett um, ad agency. So I assume it was somebody I know in the art world. I, I still am not sure who that was. And they said they're doing a new show about collecting and they heard I have an interesting collection and would, you know, would I be interested in being part of the show? And I said, and I, it's funny, I said this because there's a guy who's a huge Flintstones collector named Dave Nimitz, who I've been in touch with, who just recorded a, meet, a uh, collector's call show like in this past week. But I remember saying to the guy, look, if you're looking for the guy who you go down in his basement and the whole thing is wall-to-wall Flintstones, I don't have collections like that. I collect a lot of stuff and I like a lot of stuff and I have a number of pop culture interests and I've got a ton of stuff. But I don't know if it's what you're, you know, what you have in mind. And as it turned out, I, I had a number of photos of my office at work, which is full of toys, you know, from wall to wall. And I sent that. I said, look, if you're interested, this is the kind of stuff I, I would be able to, sh- you'd be able to see. I sent them some photos. They called me back. They said, yeah, that is interesting. We'd like that. I said, well, where are you at? I didn't even know. They said, we're in Chicago. I didn't know it was me TV either. Yeah. And, um, I said, well, if you want to come and see it before you decide, you can come over. So somebody, a couple of people came over to my office. They're like, yeah, this is great. We'd like to do this. I didn't know what the focus of it was going to be because my, my space is full of everything. And so um, they, then they started out laying, laying out to me how this works. So it's hosted by Lisa Welchel from Facts of Life, which was cool. She was turned out to be very nice. I liked her. Um, and... Uh, and they have someone that walks through like with you as you talk about your collection, not her, but someone, someone else of your acquaintance or someone, you know, and I said, well, if you're talking about my wife, she will not appear on television. My wife has always been really supportive of my stuff. As I call her in the show, she's always been an enabler of my insanity with this, but she wouldn't. So uh, one of my best friends, a guy named Rich Pine, also a really good cartoonist, look him up on Facebook. He does a, he does a lot of great um, cast caricature things from stuff like combat or twilight zone or dark shadows. Um, he was also a collector. And he's right in the office next door. We'd worked together for 20 years. So I said, you know, Rich might be a good person to do this with, you know? So they said, Oh yeah, great. And then as it turned out, when you, if, and when you actually see the show and I was delighted by this, they included some of his collection as well. Cause they just went right next door. <laughs> So then there's this hook we know nothing about. Oh, and at a certain point, one of the things you show, we're going to offer, uh, someone's going to come on and offer to trade you something for it. So, <laughs> so now as it goes on, this is all fine. I agree to it. The focus, as it turns out, and I didn't know what it was going to be, is they wanted to focus on original comic art. Well, I had a art, I had a Betty and Veronica story by Dan DiCarlo that is near and dear to me. And I I own a couple of really nice Marvel um, things, most notably the John Buscema cover to Avengers 53, which is a great face-off cover between the Avengers and the X-Men. I had a Pogo original, some other things. So it became clear that they wanted to talk about art. Okay, so fine, I can do that. I didn't realize until sort of later that the, the stuff they chose to look at 
was because they could relate it back to the present. Like Marvel comic art, because everybody knows Thor now because of the movies, right. and Archie art because, hey, Riverdale's on TV and stuff, you know? Right. So this stuff, this stuff is, you know, it's, it's, it was a good investment when I bought it as a kid for like, you know, 30, 40 bucks, these things and that, that are now worth, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. So, um, so they say, well, you know, what kinds of things are you interested in? And I thought, well, I don't know that I would trade any of this stuff, but I made a list of stuff I'd really, I would really want like a crazy cat Sunday original mm -hmm. or a Johnny Gruel um, Raggedy Ann illustration, which turned up on heritage. And I gave them this whole list. So, the guy that they get to be now, so they have an expert, an expert comes in who supposedly knows your stuff. And the expert that they get is a guy who runs the local Graham crackers comic store in Chicago on in the downtown area, <laughs> nothing against this guy, but he didn't know any of the stuff. And he wasn't, he, he didn't, he wouldn't, he didn't have a frame of reference for most of it and stuff. So what he brought to trade and they put you, they really put you on the spot. It's in that sense, it's sad. They're like, okay, and here's what we brought that you, we think you will be interested in. Well, it was a, uh, a statue of Doc Savage fighting a snake. Now it's really beautifully done. And I have a certain affection for the pulp characters, particularly the shadow, not so much the sixties Doc Savage, whatever, but, um, and I, I think I said, yeah, that's nice, but that's not, that was, they said, you made a list of things you wanted and, you know, we brought something. And I, I actually said on camera, that's, that wasn't on my list. But um, so if you watch the actual show, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a cut that I think was designed to like not hear, hear me say that. And they show this statue and I say, no, I said, it's beautiful. And it was beautiful. But it's just not, it, it, it had nothing, it wasn't in my, the league of any of the stuff we were, anyway. So, um, and then they did, they, they did a couple of segments, there's a couple of segments that didn't make it that you could see on the website, which was kind of cool. So they did a segment on Pogo. They did a segment on Marie Severn because I had the original R2, um, not Brand Act number four, which is the X-Men Daredevil mm -hmm. parody issue. Um, so those were fun. And the experience was nothing but fun. Um, it, you know, I have cartoonist friends who are like, well, I would never do that. I wouldn't show my collection and I would not take that trade. And I don't like that woman and crap like that. But <laughs> the whole experience was completely fun for Rich and myself. They were really nice. Yeah. Um, they came in for a day. I think we were there from six in the morning till six at night. Um, it, they did a great job of photographing the stuff. She's terrific. I think Lisa Welchel was really enthusiastic and really interested and asked good questions and stuff like that. So it was great. Now we didn't, again, they had like a party for everybody who was featured on the show. So I had the woman with the largest Winnie the Pooh collection and a guy with a huge wizard of Oz collection. And, and we were all at this kickoff and we watched the first episode together at like a, essentially a cocktail party. But then it was like, wait, you know, they, they would tell us your episode will be on such and such a date. And I told all my friends and put it on my Facebook page and stuff like that. And, um, uh, it came out. I heard a lot from a lot of people who thought it was great. The only really bad thing about it was they gave art estimate, the price estimates for all this stuff. And they literally go, it's worth this. And then they literally have a, a cash register sound like ka-ching and the number appears on the screen. Now let's, let's say you said something was worth between 10 and $30,000. Ka-ching, the 30,000 would come up. Every time it would be the highest number. Of course, what? So I have this, I, I alluded to it before. I have this book that I call the bun book. It's a, a rabbit book. When I was inspired by Scott Shaw's gorilla book, he asked me to draw his gorilla book. I decided I would like a book like this. So rabbits are my favorite animals. And I would ask people I met, they didn't have to be famous, but I, there are some famous people. And there's a Johnny Romita 
rabbit in a Spider-Man suit. There's Dr. Seuss. There's Ed Big Daddy Roth. There's an Art Spiegelman parody of Mouse with rabbits, which I really was amazed that he would do. Um, Sergio Argonis. A lot of great stuff and a lot of friends and a lot of people that are just great cartoonists that you wouldn't know, but I, I know. So she's, Lisa Welcher loves this. And it is really interesting. And if you ever see the show, you'll see it. They flip through the stuff and it's like, hey, you know, this is great. So then they say to the guy, what do you think this would be worth? And he says, oh, million dollars, because look, yeah. And I, instead of saying something like priceless, or there's no way to put a price on it, he says a million dollars. Ka-ching, a million dollars comes up on the screen. The next day, I'm on Facebook, and I'm a, I'm a member of a few different, you know, interested in um, original art collector sites. Now I got to suffer through comments like, yeah, I saw that. That book's not worth a million dollars. Even if it had a Frazetta drawing and a this drawing and a that drawing, it wouldn't be a million dollars. And I now I have to qualify it everywhere I go. I go, it's not worth a million dollars. I, I post a thing on this site with you guys. I go, Look, you guys, I'm a member of this page, okay? I didn't tell the guy a million dollars. You saw it yourself. It, he should have said priceless or how could you say or whatever. He said, you know, some people would say a million dollars and now it's it. I'm not, like, leave me alone, you know? It, it's, it's a prized <laughs> possession. <but. laughs> But, you know, everybody in, everybody in every area of fandom or collecting, there's a certain cross, line crossover where they're just anal beyond belief, you know, and always wanting to correct everybody. So that's kind of what happened. That was the only, only thing that made it less than a really perfect experience. And even that wasn't a big deal. I love right. doing it. They asked me right after that if I would be the expert on somebody else's collection. There's a guy in Indiana, I believe, and he's, I think he's, I forget what it's called, essentially like a hall of justice with all these superhero collectibles and costumes, pretty amazing. And I looked it over and I just said, no, there's no way on earth. And for the same reason, you know, th- th- this doesn't always work. I'm like, I can't say what that's worth. And I'm not gonna, I, I was really worried I don't want to be lowballing people's stuff. Yeah. I actually consulted with a really knowledgeable original art collector because I didn't know what my stuff was worth. And I, I said to him, I go, what's the value on these things? Because I don't want some national show going, that's a hundred bucks and it's, you know, 10,000 bucks or whatever. So I've, I fed the prices to our expert in the, in the breaks in between so that at least I'd know that that was right. And that proved to be, be right, which was good. But as much as I would have loved to be on that show again, just for the sheer fun of it, I wasn't going to put myself in that position and I wasn't going to subject that guy to somebody. I don't know how anybody who did do it could estimate it, but yeah. it's, it's incredible. I mean, you can't look at a, a thing that's like a whole separate house and go, Oh, the collection is worth this. It would be based on nothing. And I've seen episodes where people who, whose collection it was were a little bit, you could tell they were bugged. They're like, yeah. and they'd say like, well, I think he's kind of low on that. It's like, well, why not even, why even be in that situation? Just eliminate that part. I didn't know that. You know, see, like I said, I haven't seen the episode because, yeah. like, or any of the shows because it's like Sunday nights at 10 or some crazy yeah. time like that. And that's the only time they show it. It's like, <clears throat> can't you repeat it like Saturday morning or something I like think, that? Here's yeah. a tip. I think yeah. you could, I think you can see the current one always on their website and maybe a okay. few for it. And some of them yeah. have been great. I really enjoyed yeah. the Oz one. Yeah. Um, there's a guy named Rick Peterick from a group called the Ides of March in Chicago, yeah. who was a guitar collector. This isn't even in my wheelhouse, but it was just fascinating to hear the stories. Well, of all that part would interest me. The part that the, the I'm with you, the price part bugs me because yeah. I don't care what these things are worth. And also I used to say this about Antiques Roadshow and it kind of has come true. I used to say, Back when it started, probably in the 90s, I guess. I don't know when Antiques were the British show first. Yeah, yeah. But they used to quote insanely high prices for things. And I said, I know why they do that. So this will have a long shelf life. They can keep running episodes for 20 years. And it's true. 
And then suddenly in recent times, I've noticed they, they've had, you know, current market value. And they right. show a lot of things that they quoted being like a million dollars. Now it's only $800,000 because they over overcompensated yeah. for here's things what back I, then. You know? Here's what I honestly think about that. Um, number one, way back at the beginning of this conversation, 12 hours ago, yeah. I said that people respect money and value, you know, so, so that when my comic books were became valuable, then, okay, well, I guess that's not so bad. I do think that the pricing thing on, on the collector's call is directly the result of Antiques Roadshow. Yeah. But the reason it's on Antiques Roadshow or even, even American Pickers where they don't actually put it on, well, they do actually put it on the screen now that I said that, um, is because for the casual viewer, I think the, the, the main interest of that show is going like, holy cow, that guy had a, you know, a death photo of Abraham Lincoln or, oh my gosh, I had no idea that base was worth this much money. And the money is what they care about. And so when you watch the shows now, as you say, they will go, you know, 1978 price today and it's gone up 10 or it's gone down 10. And I think the appeal for people in that is again, to see like, oh, that guy had, you know, a jackpot then, but it's worthless now or, or vice versa. The price is the thing. I don't personally think their original pricing is necessarily off. I think, I think their assessments are good. Although there've been many where I also actually watched and thought that seems really low for what that is, you know? Um, I'm assuming you saw the one with the, with the, uh, the Alvin puppets, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even yeah. think they put. Did they put a price on that one? I don't even remember. I think they did, and I remember yeah. thinking they're not making a big enough deal about this. The woman who had them was the daughter-in-law, and she's not saying who's pu- who made the puppets. And the guy's got a great pedigree in TV and all that. But every once in a while, there'd be something like that, and it's like it's. Yeah. I saw one recently. It was some cartoonist's um, daughter or niece who had a bunch of stuff, and they didn't want to sell it. I think it was just they put them on the show because it was interesting. Like, oh, yeah, well, that was the thing on the chipmunk thing. Yeah, they didn't yeah. want to sell it. I know that. Um, yeah, it, it's but just she did say she did say they were in the bottom of a drawer or something. Yeah. And I'm like, there's always that too. It's like, yeah, you want me to empty your drawers for you? Is that a yeah. problem <laughs> that you got those things down there? Because she was like apologetic. We were left with a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm like. You need some cleaning help, lady? Yeah, I know. It's like, like is that a curse, actually? You got famous TV puppets? I don't know. Yeah. After, I, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't tell this, but I'll do it anyway. because. <laughs> so anyway, um, you've read my Chipmunks book, right? I yeah. assume. Yeah, yeah. Not just poured over the cover. <laughs> anyway. I love um, the cover. I love yeah, it. just the cover. Um, anyway, uh, as a follow-up, um, I, I did talk about that the puppets that were shown in that antique show weren't the only puppet versions. They're oh, no. Bob Clampett versions. There's the big puffy cheek ones. Yeah. So the yeah. Bob Clampett versions, I found that one photo, which is a screen right. grab, you know, that I managed to get because they cut that segment out. It's in the book somewhere. Uh, Dick Clark, uh, this is your life type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ross Bagasarian's on there. And I, I, they cut the whole Ross singing part out because of music rights, but I managed right. to get the quick quickest little frame but anyway i said that's probably the the bob clampett puppets because i wasn't sure and so i i asked ruth clampett i got in contact with her because she was on stew's show stew's show sex show yeah and yeah. uh she said yeah yeah that those are it you know and then she said the same thing yeah we have them but they're like in a box <laughs> well like, you know 
One of the great joys of my life was to get to know and become friends with Bob Clampett and, and what a great guy and what an encouraging guy he was for young cartoonists. But yeah, I'd read that too or heard that, that he had done the first puppets. And I'm, I'm pausing as you say this because in my mind, I know what they look like. But the Clampett family would periodically take photos together where they're all holding up a puppet and something makes yeah, me Yeah, and like, she said she had a photo of that. But yeah, she, not, and I forgot she sent it to I think she did send it to me, but it's not in the book, obviously. Yeah, but one of them is holding up a chipmunk and one's got it, you know, Thunderbolt, yeah. the Wonder Colt, and yeah. Yeah. So and they said now they said, I thought they said originally, you can correct me if I'm wrong with this. Yeah, um so the those were not the ones that oh, were here we go. Sullivan. Here we go. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So those the that's that's a screen grab from where he's singing it, and then there's Two chipmunks straddling him there yeah. on the sides, but you know what's interesting about that is Clampett. Yeah. Obviously, their their take on it is a chipmunk. They've got really fat cheeks, you know. Right. Look at those puppets. Yeah. Because and it's funny when I first heard that Clampett did it, it, it didn't make sense, and then I heard, I totally forgot about Time for Beanie, and then it then it started kicking in because I always think of him as an animator, to- yeah. and not even as a puppeteer at all. You know, but yeah, you know. and then even if you know Time for Beanie, it's like mm-hmm. he had a show called Thunderbolt the Wonder Colt, right. about a superhero horse. He had Buffalo Billy, he had uh, the Willie mm-hmm. the Wolf show. He had a bunch, he had like a little empire gone with TV puppet shows out of LA for a while, yeah. And all, all, all like the cartoon shows I liked, like Cartoon Town, with a cartoonist sensibility in the character designs, which is you know. I studied local kid shows around the country and I've had a lot of film of them and photos. You'd be amazed what passes for certain animals in other, other parts <laughs> of the country, you know? Well, I'm in Oregon now, but I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area, but also Southern California a little bit, but in the Bay area, they channel two KTVU had uh, Charlie and Humphrey and Charlie was a horse and Humphrey was a, a dog. And there's also a cat puppet, too. And, and that aired in the 70s and also a little bit in the 60s. But, you know, it was early 70s when I used to watch. And then later they took off the show because they had to put more regular programming, I guess. And then they right. just did a little PSA things which ran forever into, like, the 90s or something yeah. like that. So oh, I love that, that's my exposure to that type of stuff in my area. So. <laughs> puppets are just, and I said this to one of the guys here in Chicago who was also a cartoonist who designed great puppets. Like puppets are just 3D cartoons. You know? Yeah. And I love the format of puppets interacting with like yeah. a human being in a scenario and stuff. Yeah. And then cartoons on top yeah. of it, what could be better? Yeah. And I always did too. I mean, if it wasn't the, obviously the Muppets and Jim Henson, you know, there's the Baird puppets, there is right. uh, uh, the ones that did the chipmunks. What, what is the name of that one? The um, Bunnin or something like that? Well, uh, Hope and Maury Bunnin. Yeah. And then uh, Sid and Marty Croft had puppets right. besides, you know, the big yeah, yeah. body costumes and things like that. And so, there's people like Sherry Lewis, who I just yeah. I love. And, yeah. yeah. And even on Captain Kangaroo, you get... <laughs> hey, I love Bunny Rabbit. He never even spoke, but... Mr. I would, Moose. I, I, Mr. Moose, yeah. <laughs> So anyway. That's another example. I recently did a portrait of those guys, Mr. Green Jeans and, <laughs> and Captain Kangaroo and Grandfather Clark, because I just wanted to see a nice cartoon illustration of these guys. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great So thing. I don't know where we're going with this at this point, but... Yeah. <laughs> where does this go ultimately? Do you run this through, is this through your Facebook page? Is it like, what do you do? Oh, uh, well, I'll just say here, and this will be a plug for the podcast. You can catch any one of my Fun Ideas podcasts on YouTube with the video version that we're on. And the audio version is on Podomatic, which actually gets put on iTunes 
and lots of other places. But once I put this up, which will be in a couple of weeks, I will send you a link. Okay, great. Well, so um, how we usually wrap up the show is uh, you do a song and dance. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, how we and? usually wrap up the show is uh, you do, get to do a quick plug about what you're currently working on, how you can get in contact, if you're making any appearances anywhere, anything like that. Okay. Um, well, I could, in terms of my work, I can never tell anybody what I'm working on because it's always top secret and I've signed some sort of NDA to even be, um, to even be doing it. Um, I am, I do a lot of stuff for my own, my own, um, interests. Um, but I have recently started a Redbubble page where, um, probably at this point about 60 pieces of my art can are available on t-shirts and mugs and notebooks and stickers and all kinds of stuff, which is fun. Cause it's just like, you know, it's, you can make product without an without any overhead to do so. And, uh, and if anybody's interested in, um, in, in seeing my work, not just the, um, the stuff that they might have seen on Facebook, but it's broken down. There's, there's uh, retail product designs I've done. There's kids meal designs I've done. There's, um, you know, any, anything I can think of. And then there's also a, lot, a huge chunk of my sketchbooks on there. And there's also um, audio and television stuff that I've done on, on some of these topics. Not, not all of which is kids TV. Some of it is Saturday morning cartoons and things like that. And um, it, that's all at www.jimengleoneword.net. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a website I've had for about a year after never having done anything like that. Fortunately, I have a son who's, you know, the cartoon, there's a commercial where some, somebody says, uh, mom and dad, I'm not going to be your, or grandma, grandpa, I'm not going to be your IT guy anymore. Um, I prevailed upon my son who knows everything about IT type stuff to finally put together a site for me. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty fun <laughs> one, I think. Um, so I've heard from a number of cartoonists and people who've spent some time there. And if anybody's interested in any stuff I've been talking about, you can see examples of all of it, whether it's greeting cards or toy designs or Christian curriculum or retail products. So I've had a, I've had a very, very, very blessed career, truly. I mean, mm -hmm. art is not always the easiest uh, place to make a living. Mm -hmm. And um, I've worked on all kinds of stuff. I've met all kinds of people. I've worked on all kinds of properties and characters I wanted to work on, all different kinds of products. So um, I, you know, I thank God for the career I've had, truly. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. And besides that, too, I've worked with some really great um, other cartoonists in the process of doing all that. So it's it's just been terrific. And of course, you probably do commissions as you do book covers. I, you know, people will ask me. I don't do a lot of them. And I don't oh. sell a lot of my original art. Um, I don't mind doing it. I, if someone was really interested, they could contact me. And if it's something that um, I could do, I would do it. I do that stuff in my spare time. Um, if, it's a, if it's commission stuff, I usually would do something like a brush and ink on Bristol board or something. A lot of people only want color, but uh, some, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe 15, whatever, maybe more. I switched over to digital art. I can still yeah. do that, but I have no reason to, to do it. So I work on a, on a Wacom Cintiq, so there are no originals. That's the only drawback to it. So like yeah. the, the covers to both of your books were done digitally. Right. Um, and and I, I knew that, but that's okay, you know. Oh, no, I don't really. Better than I mean, I would, have, I would have mentioned it ahead of time. It's like, I, you know, but I probably would have paid you a lot more for it. <laughs> it's like, I want the original art. I'm paying yeah, you for it. I, I mean, put it on a board. But, you know, Work-wise, you know. it's, no, yeah. it's no less work. Because what I discovered is that with the things that you can do digitally with some of the stuff, you'll end up spending more time on it because <laughs> it's, there's so many things you can do with it. Um, but the drawback is, yeah, there's no, there's no original art. So yeah. Um, yeah. I occasionally do commissions. Yeah. People are really interested. 
And any personal appearances, or is it still too early with the uh, pandemic, or like yeah, I don't, conventions I, or anything? It's or? been years, really, since I since I've done conventions at you know sitting at a table selling stuff or drawing okay. sketches and stuff like that. I I the comic books, as much as I love them, as much as I'm surrounded by them every square inch outside of what you can see on this fake screen. Um, there's not a lot of current comics that interest me. I, you know, right. the thing I want at the comic store these days is Alter Ego magazine. Um, <laughs> and the other thing is I have, a, you know, if you, ever end, if you ever end up seeing that MeTV show, you'll get the impression that I have a huge collection of stuff. And at this point in my life, um, I'm, I'm more interested in getting rid of it than I am in acquiring stuff. You yeah. Know? And so, kind of in the same boat. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. I, I, years ago, I, one of my friends told me this, my friend Gary Ricker, I said a 10. The the expression I had that is now as is fine with me as I have that. It's probably better right. there. Right. So um, no, I don't think I don't think I've got. When my friend Bill Jackson died recently, I was doing a lot of radio and TV, mm-hmm. uh, not radio and newspaper interviews and stuff. And I will occasionally do uh, like a presentation at, at a museum or something for some of this kid show stuff. I've got some presentations put in mind. But other than that, I'll be right here in this train station in 1935 with my Cintiq and uh, talking to guys like you. So. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Jim, for being my special guest today. It was really oh, a pleasure, pleasure talking with you. And that wraps up another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast. All right, Mark. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate the invitation. Nice to finally meet you uh, face-to-face or screen-to-screen. And uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Jim Engel, for being my special guest. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode 154 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.